As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the second in a special edition of the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm here with host John McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello. Who are you speaking to today, John? Today I am speaking to Jesse Parker Humphreys, who is an expert in women's football tactics. Ooh, that's exciting. I'm yeah. excited to learn about women's football tactics. Are yes. they different from the men's? Well, we talk about that in the episode, so I won't have any spoilers. But yeah, plenty of stuff to talk about. The Euros was great from a tactical point of view. WSL season has just kicked off, so plenty to talk about in that respect as well great okay well i I can see no reason to drag this out further Mm. i will uh, leave you to introduce the episode yes let's go Welcome to TIFO Talks, a podcast on the TIFO Football Podcast Network. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined today by Jesse Parker-Humphreys. Jesse, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me, John. Jesse is a freelance women's football writer and broadcaster. They write a weekly WSL roundup on their Substack, Flying Geese, as well as hosting Box to Box, a weekly women's football tactics podcast and the Chelsea women's podcast on London is Blue. So unsurprisingly, our topic today is going to be tactics in the women's game. So I just want to start with a really broad question. Jesse, where would you say that we're at in terms of tactics in the women's game at this point in time? Can you just give us a bit of a brief overview about where the various fault lines are lying? Yeah, I think the women's game is very much in flux and is very fast moving. Broadly, I think we now would say that the top two or three teams in in most countries you would describe as being quite tactically complex anyone kind of making the quarterfinals of the Champions League onwards I think you've got a general distinction between also tactics in America in the NWSL and what we see in Europe I think the NWSL remains quite direct quite physical whereas in Europe you're seeing kind of the rise of a much more possession based game with certain exceptions teams like Chelsea and Wolfsburg still kind of value a more direct or or counter-attacking style I'd say So I think that's kind of where things have got to. But as I say, generally, I feel like the development of the women's game means these things are quite fast moving and tactical ideas come and go in in much quicker spaces than, than maybe they do in the men's game. Yeah, interesting hearing you describing the various tactical outlooks in different areas of the world, because it did seem as though, you know, you say the 
NWSL is uh, very much physical and direct. And then you're talking about possession-based systems in Europe. You're talking about Germany maybe being a little bit more direct as well, all of which I think is reflected in uh, the tactics of the, of, of the men's game. I wonder whether or not you think that the, there's a lot of overlap between what we're seeing some of the, the men's teams doing and, and some of the women's teams reflecting that. Yeah, I think there is. And I think that's something that's kind of increased over time. What I will say is I feel like there's there's often an extent where it feels like the women's game is maybe like a couple of months or, or years behind where innovations in the men's game, I think, get picked up a lot quicker. And I think that's just natural, right? Because obviously in the men's game, if a manager is doing something new, you're then playing that person like twice a season or whatever, or, or you're watching their footage a lot more. And then I think like one example I would give is like, back threes have become incredibly popular in the WSL, maybe like three or four years after they became incredibly popular in the Premier League. So I think that's the kind of thing where there's like a lot more of a slower drift. But ultimately, at the end of the day, like we're talking about people playing football. There's only so many ways you can arrange these things, right? So it's not like there's some kind of vast difference between the two. It's probably worth having the discussion at this point about the differences between the tactics of the men's and the women's games. I know that there has been some research done, particularly on the data analysis side of things, which does suggest that goals are scored differently in the men's game versus the women's game. Uh, and I wondered whether or not you thought it's right to talk about the different tactical approaches in men's and women's game, or do you just see them as just subsets of a larger tactical reality? Yeah, I, I think I'd go with the, the latter one there. I think, again, this speaks to the fact that the women's game is so much in flux that whilst there's maybe evidence of things being done differently now, I just think things are changing so much faster. I mean, there, you know, there are certain, I guess, arguments, which is like traditionally I feel like you see sometimes more technical aspects of play within the women's game because you don't necessarily have the same level of physicality, but then, you know, Spurs have brought in this striker who's like six foot one or something this season. And they're probably just going to look to play long balls to her because she's still bigger than all of the defenders. So you still see those same kind of, I guess, maybe physical differences then being replicated in, in the women's game. And look, it, it wasn't that long since Chelsea's manager was calling for there to be smaller goals because she didn't think the goalkeepers were good enough to deal with the size of the goals and no one talks about that anymore because there's professional goalkeeping coaches and it turns out women are pretty good at goalkeeping too so I think the kind of big differences like even if they do exist which I'm kind of slightly skeptical of anyway are things that we will just see changed and in five years time I think it will be thought of as bonkers that we ever thought that there was these big tactical gender differences as it were. We've talked a lot or you've mentioned at least that the women's game is in a lot of flux at the moment and the change is happening at a really accelerated pace. Why do you think that that is the case at this point in history? Is it simply that the women's game is finally being able to match the level of professionalism that is we've seen for years in the men's game? I think pretty much yeah I think the professionalization is obviously a massive part and we're not just talking about you know, players getting paid, you're talking about backroom staff getting paid. You know, Chelsea, as an example, have about three assistant coaches at this point in time and they're able to to pay people to who want to do that full time. So obviously that then helps when you're looking at, you know, your opposition analysis, you know, your preparation for a game and, and the tactics in that way. But I think another factor which I think is interesting is also the growth of data and video within the women's game. It's a lot harder to prepare tactically for an opponent if you can't watch 
your opponent at all or if you've got no steer on what they're doing and you know for a long time like data providers just wouldn't collect the data so especially when you were then looking at european competitions you would be able to go <laughs> and play them and you might have been able to send someone to watch to play them but you couldn't do the thing where you you know you'd watched every game they played that season whereas increasingly now that that is the case and i think that's creating obviously not even in terms of just like opposition analysis and preparing for a game but also understanding what other teams are doing and I think that also extends you know off the pitch just generally into into women's football media like it's kind of fascinating that when Chelsea played Barcelona in that Champions League final two seasons ago it was almost like everyone had no idea how good Barcelona were or what they were going to do because it was just very hard to watch Spanish football and now it seems bonkers to suggest that people wouldn't know how the best teams in Europe were playing and that's how how much something's changed in just two years hmm. let's talk a little bit about the Euros then because uh, I mean I'm obviously not an expert on the women's game but I, I watched a lot of the Euros and it was it felt to me like and, and this is probably just recency bias and me watching a, a major tournament most of the games but it felt to me like the tactical standard in the women's game had noticeably kicked on from the previous international tournaments I should say before then so would you agree that the Euros was a high point of tactical innovation or is that just something that I have got from not not having enough <laughs> expertise to be able to say any better no I think that's that's fair I definitely felt like it was the first international tournament I had watched where it felt like all the teams had ideas even if those ideas were bad um and I think that's something that's, that's also maybe kind of unique to the Euros in terms of its size the concentration of very good national teams like I don't necessarily feel like the World Cup next year will see that same level potentially because it's just a bigger tournament so you're, you're going to go back to seeing teams who maybe are a bit more like put 11 people out there and kind of hope for it but yeah I thought it was a fantastic tournament I thought it was really interesting in terms of the different styles the different ways managers approached it and I think also crucially the the criticism managers got when they approached it wrong. I think in the past there has been a bit of a sense of, well, whoever's kind of got the best players is just going to do the best because there maybe wasn't that level of sophistication. Whereas, and I mean, you know, maybe interestingly, you could even say that kind of starts with, with Serena Wiegmann in, in 2017 with the Dutch, who are obviously a talented team, but again, not necessarily aside who everyone thought oh yeah they're nailed on to win it and I guess you know in this year Spain were probably the the team who everyone thought they're incredibly talented not only that they came from a Barcelona background which was tactically sophisticated but then you watched them play and you're like oh no Spain are not Barcelona and I think that's what led to the tournament being so interesting because people could kind of for the first time see that that these teams were performing based on the the tactics and the plan that they had not simply on who'd been trained the best since they were 10 years old mm. yeah and it's interesting because i think in the men's game now it's sort of become an unwritten rule that the international game is the least tactical form of of football because you don't have the amount of time to to prep and you have players playing obviously in completely different systems playing with completely different teammates and so it doesn't lend itself to to really good tactical play i suppose but I'm interested in why you think that the Euros were so innovative from a tactical point of view this this time around in the women's game. It wasn't even like they had a huge amount of time to prep. I remember a lot of coaches before that tournament complaining about the fact they didn't have many games to really get their teams playing the way they wanted them to play. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it probably mainly has to do with 
the way management differs in the women's game. I think in the men's game, you definitely don't feel like you see as many managers who've been in international football for years and years and years. Whereas I think in the women's game, like I think something that's really interesting as well is the, the success of women managers within the tournament. And lots of those managers who did well had come up, they'd got their kind of big breaks, as it were, through their national associations. So Serena Wiegmann, like was just basically trained through the Dutch FA. She ended up as the Dutch senior manager, having been assistant for a number of years. She's now at England. Irena Furman's another interesting example. She's Austrian manager. Again, came through the Austrian FA, was assistant for a while, took the manager job. And Austria, one of the teams who really surprised everyone with how well they did at the tournament. So I think that's got something to do with it. And, you know, if you do look at the the teams who made the, the semifinals, England, Germany, Sweden and France, Sweden are the only team whose manager had been there for a couple of years, but has kind of had a bit more of a varied career. Wiegmann obviously had famously only been with England for 10 months, but had had that backing with the Dutch. And I think she kind of just brought what she did with the Dutch to England. And they were another set of good players who could kind of do what she did. And then Corinne Diacra and Martina Vos-Tecklenburg had both been, even though they've kind of managed at club level and had quite you know, they're older, they've had more varied paths, but had been with their national teams for long periods of time. So I think it's that level of stability, which means lots of these teams who did very well had developed quite consistent tactical identities. Whereas maybe in the men's game, and <laughs> this is just an interesting thing in the women's game generally, right? There's there's not necessarily the hire and fire thing because there's not necessarily the same attention paid to it. So Martina Vos-Tecklenburg at Germany is kind of a great example because she joined ahead of the the World Cup had a really disappointing World Cup, even though Germany have historically obviously been entirely dominant in, in Europe and they didn't even qualify for the Olympics. You have to come in the top three European teams in the World Cup to go to the Olympics. But there wasn't that sense of like, oh, we just immediately let her go. She gets more time. I don't know whether you'd have seen that with a men's Germany side necessarily in the same way. The flip side of that is sometimes rubbish coaches stay in jobs for ages like Spain with Jorge Wilder. So... Mm. Which is the, the the exciting news that has broken this morning, but we'll get onto that in a little while because I just wanted to talk about a few of the teams that stood out for you in the Euro. So I asked you for a list of three or four, and you give me four. So let's just work our way through them. So the first team is England. Obviously, the the winners had an exciting tournament, and as you as you've already mentioned, Serena Wiegmann uh, bringing that that Dutch style to to the England team. So what was it that stood out for you particularly with England? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a couple of things going into the tournament which were really interesting, which were predominantly how she wanted to set up her double pivot. So obviously, Kira Walsh had a fantastic tournament. Everyone, Kira Walsh has been the first name on an England team sheet for a very, very long time. And it's kind of great that she's getting her flowers and she's now the most expensive women's player ever. But, you know, everyone knew Kira Walsh was going to play, but who played alongside her felt like the big question. And all through the lead up to the tournament, it was it was Leah Williamson, which was this big shift, right? Because Leah Williamson plays as central defender for Arsenal. Like, everyone knows that she's got the, the technical ability, I think, to play in midfield. But it did feel awfully reminiscent of Phil Neville's Lucy Bronze in midfield experiments. Although I will say it's ironic because Barcelona's manager played Lucy Bronze in midfield for half an hour of their, their league game recently. So maybe Phil was onto something. Um, but I think it was quite clear that 
the combination of Leah Williamson and Kira Walsh just didn't didn't work. And and so obviously she brought George Stanway in, which is just a totally different profile, right? Whereas Leah wanted to kind of play the same fancy passes that Kira Walsh was going to do and, and basically do what Kira Walsh was doing. George Stanway is a lot more like, I'm going to get forward. Like, you know, she, she kind of came up through the City Academy as a 10 and has kind of found, I think, her, her right position in that more midfield, uh, like a quasi eight role or, or in a double pivot. And it worked really well. But that was like a big change kind of right on the eve of the tournament, which I think was interesting. But maybe the most interesting thing that Wiegmann did tactically was was the super subs, right? So the Euros obviously had had five subs. And I think, you know, people have kind of spoken about how this increase in the number of substitutes has maybe changed the way managers approach games. But I don't think I at least had ever seen something that was so clearly planned out based on using more substitutes or having having the ability to use more substitutes than what Wiegmann did with England, where basically every game she brought on the same three substitutes for pretty much the same three players, which was to bring on Chloe Kelly for Beth Mead, Alessia Russo for Ellen White, Ella Toon for Fran Kirby. And those three changes happened at slightly different times. You know, normally Rousseau came on earlier and, and we saw that as the tournament went on. She kind of came on earlier and earlier when it was kind of clear that, that Ellen White was maybe the weakest of, of those three players who, who was coming off the pitch. But they were ridiculous. <laughs> like they were very, very good. Alessia Rousseau, you know, almost wins the golden boot despite not starting a game because of how many goals she scored coming off the bench. Ella Toon and Chloe Kelly are the two players who score the goals in the final. But what was also fascinating is that Wiegmann just totally resisted this call that obviously as this was happening was that these players should start. And she was like, no, she used the same starting 11 the entire tournament, which is a classic Wiegmann thing. She did the same with the Dutch in 2017. And she used exactly the same substitutes all the way through. And I think having the two, you know, at points, Nikita Paris came on, Joe Scott came on, et cetera, et cetera. So she had those two in reserve and it was just to allow her to game plan, you know, everything all the way through and... It, it worked exceptionally well in good one. Yeah, and I guess the interesting thing was that she used very similar tactics across the whole tournament, really. It was, it was sort of one-size-fits-all yeah. England team, though. Was, there was the interesting pressing where she would push Beth Mead up. Well, whoever was on the right-hand side of that front three would push up. The other one would drop in. And uh, I think part of the reason why Georgia Stanway was brought in was because it was just a, there was a lot more space on that right-hand side as you're looking at it because because Beth Mead was pushing up so yeah I think the the pressing I thought was really interesting but it was very similar all the way through and and in terms of the, a lot of the ways that, that they were attacking it was actually quite interesting as well I think when you've got that front two of, of Mead and Hemp who are both just phenomenally exciting wide players both really good in 1v1 situations against fullbacks you would expect them to use them a lot more but she didn't seem to use them as, as a sort of out and out threat so yeah really really fascinating from England I think uh, and it was good enough to to win the tournament in the end so I don't know if you have any further thoughts on England but. yeah I mean that the Lauren Hemp thing I think in particular is fascinating because Lauren Hemp is one of the best 1v1 wingers carriers of the ball that in world football in my opinion right now and Wiegmann just pointedly refused like for her like she'd obviously just been told not to do that like when she was receiving the ball she was like looking for the pass inside basically rather than looking to take a defender on on the outside in the way we would see her do for Manchester City and I kind of feel sorry for Lauren Hemp because in many ways this was kind of supposed to be her breakout tournament because she was meant to do the dribble dribble exciting exciting thing that everyone loves and everyone gets very excited for but you know I think it's also testament to her as a player that she never looked 
tempted to do that, you know, and, and I think it's interesting as well, you know, I think we'll get onto Man City later, but Hemp plays in a system where there's a lot of pressure on her to just do things and to go from that to a system that was incredibly clearly tactically strict, but succeed. And I think it's notable that Hemp wasn't one of those players who was ever taken off. She was always the one who was expected to stay on the pitch. Like, I don't know if that's her age, but Beth Mead's not, you know, Beth Mead's like 26 and Lauren Hemp's like 21. So it's not really like you're like, oh yeah, Beth Mead's like 30 and has to come off. It was clearly a, a trust on Wiegmann's part that Hemp was going to play the role that she needed her to play, even though it wasn't the role that you might expect Lauren Hemp to excel in. The second team you've got on the list is Germany, obviously the other finalists. So what, what did you make of, of the German team through the tournament? Germany were a real turn up for the books, to be honest. As I, as I kind of mentioned, they had this very disappointing kind of 2019 World Cup, but they've got a fantastically talented squad with, with lots of young players coming through. I think arguably the most you know, exciting generation of young players with the exception maybe of Spain. And Germany just went in on the on the press stuff they just kind of played this 4-3-3 they pushed Lena McGall really high up from midfield to kind of go with this front three and I think they kind of scored the most from high turnovers and things like that and they basically just forced teams they really went with it in the first 15 minutes and I think with the exception of France in the semi-final maybe like all the teams like conceded in, in in those first 15 minutes but I guess what was interesting about Germany is it looked very effective and it was, they got to the final, right? But I don't know if you can play like that if you don't have Lena Oberdorf as your holding midfielder because there was so much space in Germany's midfield as a result of how high they pushed Lena McGall. And there were teams who, who did well to exploit it. I think Austria in the quarterfinals probably did the best out of anyone to, to find that space. And they were probably unlucky not to, to score, to be honest. And their goalkeeper, unfortunately, had two absolute howlers for the Germany goals as well. But... It was, I guess, a really interesting combination of how a manager was able to take on a more risky tactical setup based on the ability of Oberdorf to effectively do what maybe you'd expect two or even three players to do in a in a normal team. For anyone who hasn't watched Oberdorf, she's basically just like the most ridiculous, both reader of the game and then tackler. She's also just stacked so is very good at bodying people off the ball and, and things like that but yeah I, I thought they were they were really interesting specifically how they use Magul and Magul had a fantastic tournament and and obviously lots of the focus went on on Alex Pop and they kind of had this you know the bigger number nine who we kind of missed out on seeing in, in the final and I think it was it was notable that they didn't really know what they were doing without having Pop as that focal point because she could almost become the decoy for Magul. I mean, Magul obviously scores in the final and, and it is a great goal because she's just a fantastic finisher as well. Uh, but I thought that that combination between being able to play that direct style, I guess, especially from set pieces to pop and then also be able to do the high press, the turnovers and then have Magul running in as that extra player was a really interesting combination. Yeah, and really interesting seeing how a pressing style can get you a long way in, in a tournament and as you say if you, you can take that risky style but have an, an Oberdorf who can sit deeper and, and mop things up then it, it can it can uh, really work quite well. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Spain, we've already mentioned, are, are in the news today. Um, but you've also mentioned that they, you know, everyone expected them to be Barcelona, but they weren't Barcelona. So let's talk about the the tactical style, and then maybe we can just touch on the on the news that I think is fifteen fifteen players this morning who said they didn't want to play if the manager wasn't removed, and uh, yeah, that's causing lots of problems. But Spain in the in the Euros first. Yeah, I put I put Spain out and I put. France for similar reasons in that they both lost their star players who I guess the teams were were built around either on the eve of the tournament or very early on in the tournament and obviously with Spain that was that was Alexia Pateas and I feel like lots of long-term watchers of Spain would tell you that Alexia Pateas had been holding that team uh through anyway for for a long time uh but yeah so Spain are interesting in terms of the the Spain are not Barcelona thing they they both play these four three threes but Barcelona have a lot of Spanish players in their team, but crucially, Barcelona's wingers have not been Spanish. So normally on the right, they play Carolina Graham Hansen, who's Norwegian. And on the left, it, it was Lika Martins, um, who's Dutch, or Fridolino Rofo, who's Swedish. And I do think part of Spain's problem is that right now, they haven't had those wingers who are able to kind of stretch play in the way Barcelona's do on top of having the kind of possession heavy midfield but the other problem Jorge Vilda had which was guess kind of on top of that in terms of he generally like wants to play quite a possession heavy game but has absolutely zero penetration so you saw it during the Arnold Clark Cup where Spain played England in this like absolutely one of the driest nil-nil draws you've ever seen at Carrow Road Um, and England were playing like a second string team and it was quite like everyone was shocked that like Spain basically didn't create anything but that's pretty standard for Spain at this point Um, and they've traditionally relied on Alexia Pateas to do this kind of wonder goal or whatever and then without Alexia he obviously decided he had to fill this 10 role still and basically he just rotated in different players all through the tournament and I kind of understand why to be honest because it's very hard I think like when you lose your star player on the you know regardless that there were like there are legitimate criticisms of Spain's inability to create penetrative attacks even with Alexia but that's also like a massive loss and they'd also lost Jenny Hermoso who who was their, their central striker before the tournament too and it's interesting because it's a problem that we'll have to see Barcelona try and solve the season. But he basically tried to play like he would move Patrick Guijarro, who normally plays at the base of midfield, kind of into the what would have been the Aitana Bomati role as more of an eight. And then Aitana as, as the 10. That was one thing he tried. Uh, Mariona Caldente came in at different points. The big drama was Claudia Pina didn't play a minute, even though Claudia Pina is like, if you search for direct like based on data like direct replacements for Alexia Puteas it's just Claudio Pina so it's kind of like a combination of the tactics and personnel thing but it was weird because it was like he refused to think of how to play differently without Alexia he wanted to play in exactly the same way but he also seemed determined to ignore whoever might have actually been the most direct Alexia replacement Mm. what difference do you think it would have made if if Alexia Puteas had played I mean 
the Spanish were very, very close to beating England in in the was it quarterfinals? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose that's that's something that we sort of forget because England just sort of momentum through the through the tournament. But do you think that? Pateas would have made a difference in, in that game? Yeah, I, I think she was. And, and that England-Spain game is my favourite game of the whole tournament. When I was watching it, I was convinced England were going out, so I, I was miserable. But uh, <laughs> if, if I was going to tell someone to watch one game from the Euros, I'd watch that one because I think it was like a fantastic clash of, of two styles. And I think for all of the criticism around Jorge Vilda, he had, I think, by that point made the changes to put England under a lot more pressure. For example, he'd dropped Leila Wahabi and brought in Olga Carmona, who's a lot more of an attacking left back who had the ability to get up and down a bit more. And you saw that she was able to, I think a lot more effectively than other teams had been able to stop the Lucy Bronze, Georgia Stanway, Beth Mead triangle that was causing lots of teams problems in terms of how how much they could kind of all rotate, basically. I think if Alexia played, again, you'd have still been looking for the Alexia wonder moment. I think actually maybe the more interesting player who didn't play was Amayo Sariegi, who was, uh, he plays for Real Sociedad, who had scored an absolute bucket load of goals and had, for Spain and in, in the league and just seemed again totally out of Vilda's plans, even though he played it all through qualifying and Jenny Moso, who was normally their starting striker, was out. Um, he played Esther Gonzalez instead, but when Amayo Sariegi came on, England just couldn't deal with her movement because she I guess it's kind of similar to the stuff with Alex Pop of having a totally different option available whereas like when Esther Gonzalez was playing it was still very much like pass 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 and Sariegi comes on in extra time and suddenly it's like okay yeah we can like pump balls into her and she's gonna hold it up and like she she almost scored in in that extra time so I think the thing with Spain is Alexia would have made a difference. She's like the best player in the world for a reason. Like, of course she would have. But there were other options within that Spanish team, which I think would have taken them to a much higher level. Yeah, and a lot of what you've said about Spain there is about Jorge Vilda antagonising people (laughs) in his team and that has reached ahead. Um, So what are your thoughts on the news this morning that these 15 players are essentially standing up and saying no? Yeah, I mean... Spain have have a long history of this. There were players after the the 2015 World Cup who basically said they didn't want to play under the the manager then and they never played for Spain again. This has been something that's been building for a while. There were reports over the last um, Spain camp that Irena Paredes, who's, who's the captain, had gone to the Spanish FA with Alexia and other players and asked for Jorge Vilda to be removed. Then they're comes this very weird dressing room rift basically between Barcelona and non-Real Madrid players and then Real Madrid players on the other side and the whole like coup collapses they get Irena Paredes out for this very weird press conference where she looks like a hostage and then obviously now this has happened and again it's that same group I mean notably there's no Paredes there's no Alexia there's no Jenny in the group of players who said they won't they won't play for Spain again but it's it's basically Barcelona players and any other non-Real Madrid players. Um, so you've got the the players at Manchester United, Manchester City, Sociedad. I think clearly there's a massive problem. Like Jorge Vilda has been in charge for, for seven years. The Spanish team are ridiculously talented. It reminds me a bit of the, the Phil Neville England thing where you look at that World Cup game against the USA and you're like, well, England almost won. So like, is Phil Neville a bad manager? And the answer is still yes. Like Spain almost beat England in the quarterfinals, but is Jorge Vilda still a bad manager? Yes. And the problem is he's the technical director of women's football in Spain. He kind of got the job because his dad's involved in the Spanish FA. Like it's a whole 
very like quite miserable mess and i hope for the players sake they get to play for spain again i'm sure they will 15 just seems too many and like you're talking about like players like Aiton Bon Mati and Mapilion. Like these are starters, not people on the fringes of the team. Mm. Another miserable mess has been the French team at times, <laughs> right? Off the off the pitch, both the men's and the women's team actually. But you mentioned Corinne Diacre and, and the and the France side, um, who were hugely exciting, I think, in a in a way that, you know, we've talked about how England didn't use their their wide players. Uh, France are a team who very much did use their wide players. So yeah, what, what did you make of them in the tournament? Yeah, so France have I guess a very strange tournament in many ways. Yeah, famously, Corinne Diacre is not popular uh, among, among, again, interestingly, again, a massive club team, Lyon in this case, is who she falls out with when obviously Barcelona kind of in the Spain, Spain case. But yeah, France's big asset is, is their wide players. They've got a range of very, very talented wide players in terms of Diani, Cascarino, Sandy Baltimore, who we didn't even really see at the tournament. But, you know, again, is like one of them most talented under 23s out there but like Spain so they France get at least get one game with their star player which is Marie Antoinette Cototo who plays as their number nine and is like absolutely one of the best number nines in the world before she does her ACL and they absolutely just blow Italy away they score five goals in the first half I think I'm never going to see a game like this again England the next day go and score six in the first half against Norway so I did get to see it again but you know they were amazing and Italy were a team who everyone was very excited to see. They were actually deeply disappointing. But but I guess what was interesting was then how Diacra tried to fix this kind of Kototo issue and it touches on the wide players being their best asset because she initially started by putting Melvin Malad as the nine who is a quite young player who plays for Lyon. She can play out wide, she can play centrally. I thought she looked fine in that role, but Diacre did, clearly didn't like it and decided to move Diani into the false nine. And I think that really neutralised France's ability on the wings because suddenly one of their best wingers was was having to kind of play as this false nine role. Now, interestingly, Paris Saint-Germain, where Cototo and Diani played, are currently doing the same thing and are playing Diani as a, as a false nine, uh, having not brought anyone kind of in to play in Cototo's role over the summer. So, I mean, maybe it's something that, that people think is going to work. For me, it just didn't. It was just, it was just not worth it. It would have been better to have the threat of Diani on the right and just have whoever as the nine. Uh, they did try Saar as well, who plays for Paris FC. But again, like she, she just wasn't very good, to be fair. But I guess also similarly to, to Germany, we saw these marauding midfielders with uh, Grasgeora getting her fun hat-trick against Italy, having, I think, previously scored like three goals ever for France. But again, yeah, I think France were just an interesting team in, in how trying to fix these holes that came up through injury ended up kind of hamstringing them. As they, as they went on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move on to talk about the the upcoming WSL season. And I think a very hotly anticipated WSL season because I think everyone is rooting for the just that upsurge of interest in the women's game that we saw from the Euros to get taken into the domestic, um, the domestic space. So 
We've seen one set of games so far in the new WSL season. It should have been two, but I think it was all pushed back by a week because of the Queen's funeral. So it's obviously still early doors. So I am going to take the opportunity of having you here to tell us all about the, the things that we should be looking forward to from the season. So what are the things that you're looking out for in particular this season in terms of the domestic game? I think the key thing everyone's looking for, or long-term watchers of the WSL at least, are looking for is the development of the mid-table sides and how much they can push the sides at the top as well as whether we're going to see a change in the top three. So Chelsea, Arsenal and Manchester City have basically been the top three with the exception of this first season Manchester City were in the league. So that's like 2015. So basically for the past gazillion years. And equally, they've been way ahead pretty much of everyone else. Manchester United have kind of made good goes at the past two seasons, but fallen away at the end of the season. And I think there is one team in that three who might not make the top three this season. But then I guess the other main thing is, is how, how much can the lower teams take points off, off those top teams? Because... Traditionally, you see maybe one or two shock losses a season. Chelsea are normally good for one. I mean, Chelsea have already done one this season. Uh, Chelsea are normally good for one every season. Arsenal like basically lost the league last year because they lost to Birmingham, who finished bottom. But no team has ever lost more than two games and gone on to win the league. I think that's something we're going to hopefully start to see change. Teams will drop more points and everything will become a bit more closer and a bit more exciting. Mm. Tell us about the the title race in particular. Yeah, I think realistically it is between Chelsea and Arsenal. I will maybe throw something to Manchester United. They've been in kind of title races before and they've got a very good squad, but I still think it might be too early but it's very hard to tell because they've just played Reading so (laughs) I I don't really know how good they are yet Um, I don't think City will be in it this year realistically and Arsenal kind of now have this three-point advantage because Chelsea lost to Liverpool on on the opening day so but they had a three-point advantage last year and they threw that away so I guess we'll see if they can if they're kind of more mentally prepared to hold on to it this year. There's 12 teams right in the WSL. Yeah. What impact do you think having a much smaller number of teams, like what impact does that have on the league? Yeah, it's interesting. I think one thing, I guess it's not necessarily to do with the, the number of teams, but there's only one relegation and promotion spot, which I do think means teams at the bottom can become a lot more complacent. Um, I don't know if we'll see that this year. There's not necessarily one awful team, but normally there's just like one team at the start. Like last year, everyone was like, Birmingham will go down and they went down. So then if you're like, you've got this weird thing where basically if you win like twice in the opening, like three games of the season or whatever, if you've got a nice start to the season, you're Aston Villa, you've got nothing else to play for. Like you're probably not going to finish above ninth, but you're not going to get relegated either. So I think that's that's kind of one thing. I used to not like it, but I've kind of come to enjoy it. You look at other leagues in Europe and for example Spain have a million teams in their league and there is so much burnout I think for players because I just think realistically there's not the kind of support in terms of physicality that a Premier League team will have to help players recover etc and not only that it's just very hard for 20 teams say to sustain a level not only in terms of on the football pitch, but in terms of like the facilities they're played on. Like, you know, you look at the pictures some people play on in Spain and like, it's crazy. And then everyone's like, why are there so many injuries in Spain? And you're like, well, that's kind of why. So yeah, I think it would be good to have an understanding of 
if and how the FA plans on expanding it because it's something that expanded like quite a lot over the start that you know I think the WSL started with like nine maybe and then like it grew and now we've kind of been at 12 for a while so I don't know if that's something there's certainly teams in the championship who probably two or three who I'd say would would probably like do a fair fight uh, Mm. in the WSL so so again I asked you for a number of teams that you're interested in from a tactical point of view so I've got the list in front of me top of that list Manchester City so you've um, you described them as having a complete question mark (laughs) over them in the notes so explain explain to me what you mean by that yeah so um uh, while we're talking about mediocre managers who somehow hold on to their jobs Manchester City have an interesting problem this season in that they lost five of their starters over the summer which I think would be kind of crazy for any team to lose is particularly I guess surprising in inverted commas for a team who, who finished third and only Brighton lost more like starting minutes than Manchester City so Lucy Bronze went to Barcelona with Kira Walsh as well George Stanway went to Bayern Munich Caroline Weir went to Real Madrid and Ellen White retired because Man City managed to accidentally puncture her lung and then uh, Gareth Taylor said in his press conference he was surprised when she retired and I was like that kind of sounds like it was your guys' fault <laughs> but they lost 4-3 to Villa on the opening day, which which I think came as a bit of a shock to everyone. But Gareth Taylor is a very inflexible manager. He's been in the role, this is his third season now, and he was the City men's under-18 coach. And City always liked to do this. Like Nick Cushing before was an academy coach, did the women's team, and then obviously went off to, to New York City. So they like to go with the City group. That's how they do their, their women's team. But Gareth Taylor hasn't always uh, come across as the most tactically adept manager, even when he did have lots of players. And now this season, he has to absolutely basically overhaul his entire team. He plays this classic 4-3-3, playing out from the back. And I think against Villa in the opening game of the season, you saw that he's basically decided to be blind to the fact that the players he has now are not the players he had last season. So kind of the base of midfield is a great example there, right? Like he used to play Kira Walsh there. We know Kira Walsh is very good at playing at the base of midfield. She just won the Euros for England basically by doing that. Uh, They're now playing like Alexandri there, who is a Spanish central defender. She can play DM. She played there for Spain as part of that. How do we switch that midfield around to to make up for Alexia not being available? But she's not going to turn around and start playing lots of really nice passes out towards Lauren Hemp and Chloe Kelly, which is kind of the thing Kira Walsh did. Equally, Taylor City last season liked to really push his eights onto the edge of the box. And Caroline Weir and George Stanway were both fantastic at doing that. You know, George Stanway is really good at doing those kind of runs up and down. Lucy Bronze would then kind of tuck in, like the way kind of Cancelo does for Pep. It was like very similar. And Caroline Weir would stand on the edge of the box and score bangers because that's what Caroline Weir likes to do. In their place, it's, it's kind of unclear. Uh, Lucy Bronze, you've kind of got Esme Morgan or Kirsten Kasparai, who they're both very, very young right backs and neither of them are going to do what Lucy Bronze does because she's probably the best right back in the world still. They've got Philippa Angeldell and Mary Fowler and Vicky Lasada as eight. And they also got Yui Hasegawa, who, who played as a 10 for West Ham. So they've got lots of very talented players, all of which I could see doing very interesting things. But firstly, I don't think they work as eight next to Laya Alexandri. There's lots of players there who are much more suited to play, say, as 10s. But I don't see Taylor necessarily being able to figure out how to reconfigure his midfield to, to allow for that. But at the same time, I'm not sure I know. I'm not convinced he's able to then mould those players if he wants them to fit into a more rigid system. And I think the weirdest thing of all is, is when you look at the front three, 
Lauren Hemp, Bunny Shaw and Chloe Kelly are like, that's ridiculous. Like, I will never not be scared about like playing against those players because they're very, very talented. But there's kind of quite a simple thing to do with them and that's hoof the ball up long and just choose to play a bit more direct. And interestingly against Villa, like the one time they did that, they scored. But it just feels like Gareth Taylor is like going to persist with, you know, Steph Horton playing the ball to like Alexandre, who's very easily pressed and then kind of has to rapidly play it back to Alex Greenwood. And Villa are not a team who you <laughs> would consider as a high pressing team by any stretch of the imagination. But City are just so easy to predict because you can just game plan entirely like how they're going to how they're going to play out from the back. And um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see, I think, whether anything does change but I don't know if Taylor's got the ability to mm. do that sounds like very much like F- FA grassroots football like mm. academy coach doing the going through the motions but the the next two teams that we're going to talk about are the title chasing teams as you've said it and both have very interesting tactical managers uh, and I think interesting because we've seen a good deal of their tactical ideas in press boxes on the the other side of the mic, right? So Jonas Eideval did a a certain amount of work in the Euros and we've seen Emma Hayes doing a lot of punditry um, across both the men's and the women's game as well. Um, Let's kick off with Jonas Eideval's Arsenal, who are, I guess, in the pole position now, given the the results of the first <laughs> first match day, which sounds, I guess, a bit weird. But like, what do you make of, what do you make of Eideval's Arsenal this season? Yeah, I think this is a really big season for for Eideval because he's a very different kind of of tactical manager to to Joe Montemurro who was there before. Joe Montemurro was very like possession heavy, nice passing, you know, liked really maybe cutesy, but like creative players, I guess, who were going to do like pretty things. Like Jordan Nobbs is a classic Montemurro player. And Eideval kind of comes in with this a bit more like maybe rock and roll type physical, high press, very fast football and immediately blows away Chelsea on the opening day of last season, right? And everyone's like, oh my gosh, wow. But then I think over time, what we've seen is whether Eideval has the kind of pieces he needs to play the kind of football he wants to. There's no doubt in my mind that Jonas Eideval is a, a talented manager, but there are lots of different things at Arsenal which still feel like they don't quite fit. And I think one that's really fascinating is Viviana Miedema, who last season it looked like she was going to move on, didn't decide to stay, signs this new deal. And the thing Eideval did is, is in January, he moves Miedema from, from playing as a nine, where she's been the WSL's all-time top goal scorer, to play as a 10, brings in Stina Blackstenius, who's a, a Swedish number nine, to, to play ahead of her, who, you know, I think immediately has like a lot more of the kind of physical profile that Eideval's maybe looking. And Miedema is happy with this, because Miedemar says she's always wanted to play as a 10. And basically the only reason she ended up playing as a nine is the national team didn't have one. They kind of moved her there. She scored loads of goals and then everyone was like, well, we'll keep her there. The problem being is that I don't know if Eideval wants Miedemar as a 10 either because she kind of then goes into that Jordan Nobbs, Mano Obuchi, like kind of cutesy 10, like intricate role, which she's good at and like she's an incredibly talented footballer of course like you'd be everyone would be stupid to not want Miedema at their club anymore but at the same time I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether she does gel with what Eideval actually wants and I think also something that's going to be really interesting to watch with Arsenal is that for all they want to press high and put teams under pressure they're very bad at dealing with 
themselves. And we saw this last year against Wolfsburg in the Champions League. Um, they really, really struggled with the high press, especially out in the wide areas. And then interestingly, they played Ajax in the Champions League this week. And Ajax in the women's game are not Ajax in the men's game. Like they didn't even finish top of, of the Dutch division. They've got lots of very exciting young players. They were playing a 17-year-old at centre-back. And, you know, this is a team that Arsenal should have been. And very, um, very low PPDA. Uh, uh, well, famously, yes. on Weisscout. Um, <laughs> is the biggest concern for Arsenal that they're using Weisscout data this season? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and Arsenal really struggled again but because Ajax were quite physical. Ajax pressed them high and... With kind of Leah Volti and Kim Little, you ended up with this massive gap between them and Miedemar. And then you start to see Miedemar dropping, you know, the jokers that Miedemar will basically drop to play a centre-back to get on the ball. And again, like, I just don't know if the way Eideval's kind of more structured pressing style has room for someone who just kind of wants to float and find space somewhere on the pitch because she's so desperate to get on the ball. So I do kind of think he has a bit of a Miedemar problem. Mm. Chelsea, on the other hand... Yeah, I mean, I think like Chelsea are a very, very interesting team tactically. Like I've spoken to people who kind of know analysts within the game and they say that Arsenal and City are very easy to game plan against, but Chelsea just like have no clue because Hayes will go through like a million pressing variations within the, the first 15 minutes. She like very actively doesn't really believe in formations. They're kind of playing like a hybrid back three back four at the moment they signed Kadisha Buchanan who's a very highly rated uh, central defender came from Leon. it looks like she will play in a back three with with Magda Eriksson and, and Millie Bright but they also in pre-season kind of had Magda Eriksson play at left back which, which she can do she's done for Sweden before and then Buchanan and Bright as, as a four but basically it's like the defense generally will rotate rounds from side to side, depending on how Chelsea want to play. Case in point, I guess, is is Guru Wright and had an exceptional season last year as a as a left wing back, even though she's she's a winger. But basically they were just pushing round again, so she was so high up, uh, you wouldn't know it. I think what will be interesting for Chelsea, I guess maybe it's similar to, to the Miedemar thing, maybe this is WSL season as the season of number tens, is this having a number ten role. And it's not something Emma Hayes has normally done. Uh, or certainly in recent years, I guess previously Jisoo Yun did that role a lot, but her kind of position in the team had, had changed o over time. And there was kind of the, it was like a front three, I guess, of Harder, Kerr and Kirby with the caveat that they, they were ve a very fluid and free front three. But I think everyone agrees that we've not really seen the best of Penila Harder at, at Chelsea and, and her best role probably is as a 10. The other interesting element of this is Chelsea really wanted to sign a holding midfielder and they didn't because there are no holding midfielders available. That's why, <laughs> because Barcelona hogged them all. They've got Patry and Kira Walsh. But, you know, Chelsea were interested in Kira Walsh. They were interested in Lena Oberdorf. They were very interested in Grasgeoro, even though she's not quite the same role. And they didn't get any of them. And it looks like Emma Hayes has decided to kind of repurpose Erin Cuthbert as a tiny Scottish Lena Oberdorf, I guess is the idea, which I kind of see. I think I think it could work. But that's kind of basically freed up, I guess, two roles in midfield, it seems. And she's done some strange stuff in preseason. Like I saw her play Lauren James and Penila Harder basically as free eights against Spurs. It was hilarious. Like they just like bossed everything. I don't know if you can do that seriously. And then against Liverpool, she like tears up everything she did. And I had zero idea. Like there was no, ta it was like when tactical fluidity becomes nothing. Like no one knew where they were. So I don't know if Emma Hayes has just like fallen off the, the mountain into like 
having no kind of structure um Chelsea play City this weekend so that will be very interesting to see if she goes back to something more structured ahead of that Liverpool game harder pulled out in the warm-up so I don't know whether that just forced Hayes's hand but Lauren James is playing at right wing back and she is not Reese James mm. you're a Chelsea fan so you have the uh the enviable situation of watching two of the most interesting tactical matches in world football <laughs> at the moment in, in Emma Hayes and Graham Potter. Emma Hayes is obviously a brilliant manager uh, and a brilliant tactician. And as we've already said, like we've, we've had a huge insights into that, both in the commentary box, but also I remember the, um, the video that Arvin did. Um, I mm. can't remember which season it was. It must have maybe a couple of seasons. But maybe it was it's, last uh, season. two se- it's the season, two season we made yeah. the Champions League final. Yeah. Uh, just hearing Emma Hayes ordering the press around um, which I think really made it very clear just how certain she is of what the ideas that she wants on the pitch Mm. and and shouting at um, at various players to to get into position. The big question with Emma Hayes is always will we ever see her in the uh, in the coaching in the men's game and I hope that that's a question of when not if. What's your take on that? Do you think that we will see Emma Hayes in the dugout of a men's game at some point? Yeah, I I think it's a question of when, not if as well. I think there's a question of level, which is probably a a question for Hayes herself. Like, I don't think she does have any interest in going to manage like a League Two team, for example. Hmm. Um, I suspect she'd want to look at like a championship or above. I think it'll be very interesting to see. Like, she's clearly an exceptional tactical manager, but with blind spots like I think something that you know Chelsea are going to look to move to do more this season and do better is play more of a possession game because I think that's why they've struggled in the Champions League they've not always been very good at holding on to the ball they do like to just kind of play fast and and go for it whether it's down the wings or you know like they're more than happy to play long balls in behind for Sam Kerr to run onto. so I think that's why I think she's kind of trying to reconfigure the midfield but I do think it would be interesting to see maybe how how that adapted within the men's game I also think what would be interesting and I guess maybe this is like always the big question about um women managers in in men's football is that I do think one of Hayes's biggest assets is that she makes players want to play for her you know the classic like thing about Chelsea is everyone's like oh they've got so many like good players how do they keep them all happy it's because they want to play for Hayes it's like it's the same as Pep and players at City like if you want to play for an exciting manager you stay at the club and I think it will be interesting to see how that like kind of people management would translate because I think that's like that is a real key part of who she is as a manager it's not just her her kind of tactical ingenuity but it's the whole package but I think the thing that will suit Hayes best when she when she does look to move on is that she's like a real chameleon you don't stay at Chelsea for 10 years and have as much success as, as she has without changing stuff and you know Chelsea famously have slow starts to seasons because Hayes is always kind of like ripping it up like I don't know if I always agree with that or what she's trying to do and, and often you see her just kind of revert to what she was doing before but even with the punditry stuff it's interesting the amount of stuff Chelsea have taken on from what Serena Wiegmann did with England players you know like Kirby was playing as a 10 at the start against Liverpool like she did for England whereas normally she plays right wing for Chelsea Emma Hayes has put Millie Bright up front after Serena Wiegmann started doing it like to try and win games so I think all of that stuff will serve her very very well when she moves on because I just think you never quite know what you're going to expect from her now the last team or I should say teams on this list I've got Spurs slash Villa 
<laughs> which tells a story of its own. So why have you put those two together? Yeah, well, so I was originally going to just do Spurs because I think Spurs have a very interesting challenge this season in that Rohanskin has been there for, I think, maybe a season and a half now. And she's basically made them a very good defensive team for, for context. They, they, came, they came fifth in WSL. They came fifth for expected goals conceded as well. But crucially, they were 10 ahead of the, the team who were sixth. So they're very much like in that same level defensively as the Manchester United, City, Chelsea and Arsenal. But in terms of attack, they're awful. Like there is there is nothing there. And they've signed two players. One I mentioned earlier, Nikola Karsiewska. I think that's how you say her name. She's Polish. Uh, she's very, very tall. And they've also signed Celine Bize, who's a very exciting um, Norwegian player who lots of people are very looking forward to see. She was at PSG and just didn't really get game time there. I'm not sure if Rohan Skinner can coach an attack, but I will also have the caveat is that I don't know if she had the pieces before, but I think that's something that will be interesting to look out for this season, whether it's something she can do, because for me, that will like kind of show the difference between whether she's a good manager to like being a very good to elite manager. She's someone who came up, has come up through the FA's coaching pathway, basically. So that'll be interesting because there's just, there's just a dearth of very good, managers still in women's football I think um which is which is an issue and then I put Aston Villa in just quickly because they surprised me so much against recency yeah (laughs) recency bias yeah as I said they're a team who again Carla Ward's a a manager who's got a reputation for being very good at organizing a team and being very defensive but not necessarily being able to add anything on top but Carla Ward has managed Sheffield United in the Championship, Birmingham City and Aston Villa. So it's not a set of teams who, who necessarily would expect her to have done that with. But they signed Rachel Daly from the Houston Dash over the summer to play up front for them, which is like a really, really big deal for, for a team of Villa's size historically in the women's game. And then they come out against City with this like incredibly high press. Alicia Lehman, of all people, is like tracking back to tackle Demi Stokes. And I'm like, wow, this is like the total opposite. So... I don't know whether it's just because City are a team who are very easy to press because, as we said, they do exactly the same thing when they get the ball every single time or if this is something to keep an eye on. But they've got talented players. So if that's what Carla Ward's going for, I think they could be one to watch. Just one final question before we promo stuff, but what's the best way for people who don't follow the women's game to find out more about the the tactical side of, of the women's game? Obviously, that's becoming a bigger thing as, as time goes on. So what would you recommend people do if they want to find out about what's going on on the pitch? Honestly, like I just kind of recommend watching it, <laughs> to be honest. Like that's kind of obviously the best way. And I will say like Sky picking up the rights to the WSL has been like a massive game changer. I think even even more so than than maybe like the Euros, although obviously like in combination they work really well. But uh, Sky have a lot of very clever pundits maybe not in the same way that they always do on the men's side of football and some of the stuff they do at halftime like Karen Carney Kelly Smith with a big screen to point and move things around on um yeah I I would just recommend kind of watching it and and watching the coverage that that sits around it because it's it's a very high quality to be honest and that's a big change in the women's game thank you so much Jesse for coming on today what I've already mentioned in the in the intro so you have a a substack flying geese um, which I presume people can just search for that on on the internet and come up with that box to box is is a weekly tactics you can listen to that as well if you want to find out more about the tactics of the women's game but I didn't want to over promo myself that's you (laughs) Alex and Abdullah on that just me and Alex just you and Alex now yeah and then finally the Chelsea women's podcast on on London is blue as well for 
particularly Emma Hayes focused content presumably <laughs> yeah yeah exactly if you want me to uh, try if you want to watch in real time me try and figure out what Chelsea are going to do this season uh, <laughs> that's the thing to listen to and on Twitter what's your handle at Jesse JPH cool. well thank you so much for coming on today thank you for having me